Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So did anybody have to read Gulliver's Travels when you were in school? Show of hands, show of hands. Anybody watch the movie? Okay. Uh, so there's this great scene in Gulliver's Travels where the Lilliputians, those are like the little, the little people, um, which is not, I'm, they're just little people, all right? I know it's not politically right. They're small. And, um, and they like capture Gulliver and, uh, and it's fascinating. Uh, they, they, they look at Gulliver and they think his clock is his God because he keeps referencing it over and over and over again. I'll let the Lilliputians speak for themselves here. They recount, out of Gulliver's pocket hung a great silver chain with a wonderful kind of engine at the bottom. We directed him to draw out whatever was at the end of the chain, which appeared to be a globe, half silver, half of some transparent metal. He put this engine to our ears, which made an incessant noise like that of a watermill. And we conjecture it is either some unknown animal or the God that he worships. But we are more inclined to the latter uh, opinion because he assured us, if we understand him right, for he expressed himself very imperfectly, that he seldom did anything without consulting it. He called it his oracle and said it pointed out the time for every action of his life. Now, this was written in 1727. And already in 1727, Jonathan Swift, the author and an Irish clergyman, understood the idolatrous relationship that we have with hurry, that we have with time. He references it over and over. He calls it his oracle, the Lilliputians say. What, what do they say here? He seldom did anything without consulting it. Hmm. Now, question for you today. By the Lilliputians' logic, What's your God? What do you keep checking over and over and over? What do you reference time and time and time and time again? For like everything in your life. Okay, so for many of us, it's our smartphones, right? Let's just call it, it's our smartphone. It's the first thing we check in the morning, the last thing we lay hands on at night. If we leave our house without it, a panic attack ensues. And throughout the day, we check it unceasingly at intervals every what, five to 15 minutes. We lay it face up on our desk, face up on the dinner table when we should be conversing. It's on our nightstand. It's next to us in the couch. It's within arm's reach when we're at a stoplight or in the car. It might as well be an extra appendage on our body. Now, that being said, uh, I want to do a, a thought experiment today. A thought experiment. Okay, I'm actually going to let you sin in church. Are you ready for this? I'm going to, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. You are already forgiven for, this is an elite crowd anyway. So you come with the rain and the snow and Omicron and all that. Like you're, you're elite. So you deserve a sin this week. So I'm going to let you sin in church. I want you to pull your smartphone out in church. Go ahead. Pull it out. You have permission to pull out your iPhone. And uh, what I want you to do 
is, uh, is I want you to check your screen usage today. In church. Oh, the collective groan in the room. Mm. Now, yeah, see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, I don't know how to do that. Sorry, guess I just won't participate. Well, fortunately for you, next slide here, I've provided both <laughs> iPhone and Android step-by-step step for you to get into your screen time. So for you iPhone users, I have an iPhone. Um, I want you to click on your settings, all right? And uh, in the little second chunk of apps in your settings, the very bottom, there should be a purple hourglass. It says screen time. I want you to click on that. All right, if you're next to your mom and dad, help them, please. Okay, click on that. And then it, it'll only show your activity for today because it resets every Sunday. So what I want you to do is I want you to click on see all activity. You see that little line, see all activity. And then I want you to swipe to the right, to like this way. Swipe to the right and it'll take you back to last week so you can see a whole week's worth. Did you follow with me on that? Did you make it? Okay, settings. Screen time, see all activity. And you should see the graph there and then swipe it to the, to the last week. Now, as you're looking at your numbers, I have a few questions for you. First, what's your total screen time last week? What is it? 14 hours, five hours, okay. If you're too embarrassed, you can just show a friend. Underneath that screen time, I want you to look at your most used apps. Which apps are you spending the majority of your screen time on? Just share that one with a friend. Okay, and for those top one or two apps, I want you to look at the actual allotted amount of time on that app. How much time were you on those, those like top apps? For me, for those who are wondering, confession, my top app is Messages app. I use it a lot for work, okay? And I say that because last week I spent seven hours on it. Just the Messages app alone. Judge me, fine, care. Now on the iPhone, this is, this is cool. If you scroll down just a little bit further, there's this feature called Pickups. It, it counts how many times you pick up your phone. Do you see it? You see the Pickups counter? I want you to look at how many times you picked up your phone last week and what your top day was. Whew. How many hundreds of times you picked up your phone last week, Gulliver. And then this one's for free. Right underneath the pickups counter, it shows you the first apps you go to when you pick up your phone. So I pick up my phone. Here's the first app I go to. I want you to look at that, that app or this, the app right underneath it. Because that's your problem. And that one's for free. Okay? We're not even going to pass the offering. All right. Now, while you put your phone on Do Not Disturb and place it somewhere far out of reach, I would just remind you that there are apps you can actually download on your phone to help make sure you don't spend too much screen time on it. Like, it'll shut certain apps down when you hit your limit or it'll send really embarrassing notifications to your family or your friends if you spend too much time on an app highly recommend because apparently we now need apps on our phone to save us from apps on our phone <laughs> this is a picture of James Williams James Williams worked at Google for 10 years he was a part of the team that 
spent hours upon hours perfecting the data-driven advertising model that so many of us are all too familiar with today. Williams was very good at his job. In fact, I think it was around the year 2009, he won an award called the Founders Award. It's the highest award you can get at Google for any employee. But while he developed this technology, Williams began to feel very uneasy about it all because he began to see how distractible it made people. Like, for example, in 2015, Pablo Sandoval, the third baseman of the Boston Red Sox, literally got suspended for a game because he was caught in the previous game checking his Instagram and liking the photos of a cute girl. Or how about Patti Lapone, Tony Award-winning singer and actress who, at the end of a scene in one of her shows, went up to the front row, grabbed the smartphone out of the person's hand standing there, and took it off stage with her. Why? It was distracting her, other actors and actresses, and all the people in the audience. By the way, this isn't just the case in theater. Next time, I don't know, you're on an elevator, look at what everybody's doing. Next time you're standing in line at the grocery store, look at what everybody's doing. Next time you're in traffic at a red light, look to your right, look to your left, and look at what everyone is doing. You ever gotten on your phone before to do something and then, I don't know, got on social media or gotten like a YouTube wormhole and all of a sudden you come to and you realize you've wasted a half an hour and you don't even remember why you got on your phone in the first place? I see some smiles. Yeah, exactly. And so Williams came to realize all this and it horrified him. The level of distraction, the level of mind control, the way that their technology was colonizing every spare moment of attention that we had. So you know what Williams did? He flipped. He flipped teams. Fast forward eight years from the Founders Award, he won a totally different award. $100,000 prize, it's called the Nine Points Award by Cambridge uh, University for, uh, for original thinking. And you know what his original thinking in, uh, was in? Tech ethics and his scathing and scorching review of the technological industry that he was once a leader in. This sums up his book well. He wrote, the liberation of human attention may be the defining moral and political struggle of our time. Now, think Williams is like a lone wolf conspiracy theorist with an anxiety problem. Well, think again. Google's CEO told New York Times in 2017 interview that he doesn't even let his 11-year-old son have a phone. And he has restrictions on both tech and screens in his home. Uh, he was quoted saying this in the article. He says, at home, our television is not easily accessible so that there is activation energy before you can easily go watch TV. I don't know what activation energy is. It sounds like a fancy way of saying like, it was, we put it in the closet or something. I don't know, like 10 burpees before you watch it. I don't know, right? But you can see he says next, he says, I'm genuinely conflicted. And again, he's not the only one in the tech industry who's genuinely conflicted. Stories continue to leak out of Silicon Valley of how more and more tech executives are sending their kids to screen-free schools. You ever heard of the Waldorf Academy? The Waldorf School? Here's a picture of it. UK Times writes this. It says, imagine inside a concrete block at the top of a hill in San Francisco, 27 nine-year-olds are handed needles and ordered to sew. Across the hall, eight-year-olds churn butter by hand. 
while downstairs four-year-olds are busy sweeping up, washing dishes, and dehydrating fruit. This is not a child labor camp in the heart of America's richest city. It's a school, and among the tech crowd, it has become much sought after. The San Francisco Waldorf School, you see, has a strict no-screens policy. In fact, it is deliberately analog, a throwback to a time when it was all blackboards, pencils, and paper. But with a new age twist, check this, the tech elite in America are paying up to $40,000 a year to send their children to schools that enforce a back-to-basics approach. CBS News reports, at the Waldorf School, nearly 75% of the kids have parents who work in tech. The school favors physical activity and art over technology. Computers are not introduced until the 8th grade. And, hmm. I guess, apparently, their tech is okay for your kids, just not theirs. Uh, this next picture is a picture of an over a thousand year old Greek manuscript of the Hippocratic Oath. A little church history for you. It's shaped like a cross, as you can see here. Um, which, by the way, is very peculiar for the Hippocratic Oath because the Hippocratic Oath predates Christianity itself by 300 to 500 years. And uh, it was also a pledge originally vowed to the pagan gods. But you can see Christians adapted it. Now, if you are in uh, the healthcare industry or if you're a medical doctor, you know what the Hippocratic Oath is. It's pledge that physicians have been saying for 2,500 years that vows to practice at the very highest standards of ethics. It's been redone and re revised many times in its 2,500-year life, uh, but physicians around the world still use something like it even to this day. Now, did you know, though, that really since the earliest Christians... Uh, the early church led in the advancement and progress of ethics in the field of medical technology. Did you know this? Uh, in fact, the first ever public hospital was started by a bishop. Bishop Basil of Caesarea in the Byzantine Empire, central Turkey, started the first ever public hospital in the year 370 because of the heart of Jesus that had compassion for the poor. It so hit the bullseye of the heart of Jesus that other bishops around the Eastern Empire began to start hospitals of their own. In the late 4th and early 5th century, spread like wildfire. In the Western Empire, part of the Roman Empire, uh, it trended a little bit later. The first public hospital was started there in the year 390 by a wealthy Christian woman who, who was a convert later in her life named Fabiola. Her story is amazing and inspiring. Now, the reason why I tell you all this is, is not to say that somehow Christians came up with medicine. They did not. In fact, the medi uh, medicine best practices that were practiced in these hospitals were based on pagan predecessors like Galen and others who came before him. I tell you this because I want you to see the attention to medical ethics. See, from the very beginning, Christians, as shown in the Hippocratic Oath, can you show that one more time? It's just really pretty beautiful. From the very beginning, Christians embraced the highest standards of ethical practice in medicine. But they didn't stop there. They raised those standards even higher through the compassion of Jesus, love for the poor, and love for neighbor. Medical technology may have been someone else's idea, but public hospitals for rich and poor alike, well, you have to go to saints like Fabiola. Basil to find that. It started with the, with the Jesus movement. Now all that 
makes me reflect on this, y'all. I wonder when big tech is going to come up with its own Hippocratic Oath. If you are a leader in the tech industry today and you're in this room right now, I just want to encourage you. If you're waiting on uh, government to regulate this with some sort of conscience or if you're waiting on big tech bosses to have bigger consciences than their appetites are for wealth and for power, don't hold your breath. We need you to stand in the stream of Christian leaders. We need you to be the salt in the life now. We need you to embrace the very best ethical practices that are in your industry right now and raise the roof in the name of compassion and love for neighbor. We need you. Because none of us can afford to wait. Now again, if you're wondering why I'm sounding the alarm on this, um, I think it's that big of a deal. And I'm gonna continue to sound the alarm on this throughout this series. Uh, Linda Stone Uh, wrote this in 1998. She said, continuous partial attention is now our default setting. And I agree with that. Take that one step further from what James Williams said earlier. I think continuous partial attention isn't just the moral and the political challenge of our time. I think it's the spiritual one. So here's my big idea for the day. And it's a little big, but it's important. I believe when continuous partial attention is our default which it is, it actually debilitates our capacity to hear, to see, to adore, to petition, to experience, and to commune with God. This is what Christians have traditionally called prayer. At its most basic level, prayer is just giving your attention to God. And look, you can't have a relationship with God without prayer, or at least not much of one. Now, we Christians, especially in sort of like the Protestant, non-denominational, evangelical stream of thinking, we love to talk about our relationship with God, and it's good language for it. But prayer is actually how you have a relationship with God. And I wonder, how much attention do you you give to him? Uh, Carrie Newhoff, the Christian author and like leadership blogger and podcaster, uh, recently uh, said, uh, you should think of all all the distractions and the notifications and the chirps and the beeps and the buzzes on your phone like somebody knocking on your door. And it'll help you to kind of understand how it breaks up your attention. So like, let's pretend you wake up, right? You wake up in the morning, you go downstairs, I don't know, you make a cup of coffee, Bible, prayer journal, I don't know what you do. And you get to your prayer spot, right? And you start to pray. And right when you start to pray, our Father who art in heaven, there's a knock on the door. So you go to the door, you open it up, and and who is it? Well, it's all your friends on that group text at 6.30 a.m. Good morning, gif, 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 gif. And you're like, well, that's a pretty funny gif, so you heart that one. But then you put it on silent, silent, because it's your prayer time. And you go back, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy hey, uh, it's your calendar app over here at the front door. Come on by. I just want to remind you that you got that meeting in one hour. Travel time, 12 minutes. Traffic's light. Thanks, calendar apps. And our Father um, who, what is, where was I? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy. Hey, uh, it's your coworker. Just needed your opinion 
on this uh, thing that we're going to cover in the meeting this morning. It's, it's 9 a.m., so can you just give me your advice? Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Make these two changes. Our, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy, thy kingdom. Hey, it's your mom. Um, just checking if you're okay today. Haven't talked in a couple days. Hey, it's your husband. You want a breakfast sandwich? Hey, it's the weather. You know, it might snow later. Hey, it's your husband again. Do you want cheese on that breakfast sandwich? Hey, it's your fitness app. You need to get some steps in today, sir. Hey, it's a random spam call from Spokane, Washington. Hey, it's your family conspiracy theorist on the group text. And if you click on this link, it explains everything. Hey, it's your son. Need some clean socks. All day long, right? Continuous partial attention. So I'm just telling you, can I just read this again? It's that important. Put the, put the big slide, the big idea back up here, y'all. When continuous partial attention is our default, it debilitates our ability to pray. We can't experience God. We can't give him our attention. We can't commune with him, hear from him, talk to him. We just can't. I'm gonna tell you, you can't have a relationship with God without prayer, or at least not much of one. So we have to figure out how to unplug from the distractions and plug into prayer. Now, I'm going to work through a digital rule of life with you guys in the coming weeks to help us kind of clean up our digital practices, at least for those of you who want to. I hope you want to. But today, what I want to do with the rest of our time is, uh, is I want to give you some practical ideas about how to cultivate rhythms of prayer in your life, all right? Really practical. I was going to do a theology of prayer and walk through Luke 11 and whatever. And that, that's good. It's important. But let's save theology for the classroom or for another day. I want to give you practical insights, a lot just from my own life, that I hope will be helpful for you. I want prayer to be something that you like, for the record. I want it to be joyful. I don't want it to feel like a divine mandate or a duty. I want you to look forward to it. I want you to want to do it multiple times a day, to long for the moments when you get to spend in the presence of God, like extended time. I want you to feel like it's life-giving. I want you to be able to spend over an hour every day praying, multiple times a day. You know, just like, just, just add it up, right? And I believe you can. That is not out of reach for you, I promise. But it takes cultivating unhurried rhythms. Now, here's my two pieces of advice for you, and then we're gonna get super practical, all right? If I had to sum up how to cultivate a rhythm of prayer in your life, oh my goodness, I'm seeing the student section over here. If you guys could just embrace this when you're a teenager, it's like, oh man, dear God, press it into their hearts today. Okay, two pieces of advice here, two pieces of advice. One, all right. You want to cultivate this unhurried rhythm, one, diversify your prayer methods, and two, habituate your prayer times. That's what I want to build off of, okay? Could give you a lot of pieces of advice. Th these are two. Write these down. One, diversify your prayer methods. It's okay to change up the ways that you pray. And two, habituate your prayer times. All right, get, get some rhythms into your regular day. Let's start with the second one first. Let's start with your prayer times. Oh. Habituate your prayer times. Um, Okay, creating small little habits is how you make a life for yourself. You know that, right? Small little habits that you do day in and day out are what end up forming you over the course of 20 to 30 years. Your life will be made through the habits that you make. I promise you. Okay, it's like brushing your teeth. You do it for two minutes every day. It's kind of a big deal. Kind of like, sometimes you don't even want to brush your teeth. You're like, I don't want to make my coffee taste weird. But you, you brush it anyways. Now, if you were to ask me, Tyler, what's the brushing your teeth of prayer? 
and this is my opinion, I would tell you, it's, uh, it's what Christians have called for years the daily office. The daily office. Anybody ever heard of the daily office before? Anybody? Okay. If you were here for Melinda's prayer a couple, years, uh, a couple months ago, then you heard it. So shame on you for not remembering it. But, but, but she did a tremendous job explaining the daily office to us. Uh, the daily office is basically like a quiet time, but you do it at specific strategic times over the course of the day. Uh, for me, I would suggest to you that you hold these kind of quiet times three times a day, morning, sometime around lunch, and dinner. And the reason why you stretch them out over the course of the day is because it, it helps stretch out awareness of God over the course of the day. Okay, so uh, I got my, what's the box, Tyler? Well, you'll see in a second, um, but I got my, there it is. I got my copy of Emotionally Healthy Spiritualities, Daily Office here, okay, written by Pete Scazzaro. Everyone should buy this. I'll come back to it in a second. Here's how Scazzaro uh, defines Daily Office. He says, the daily office provides a structured way of spending time with God each day, but it differs from what we tend to think of as a quiet time or devotions. Quiet time and devotions normally take place once a day, usually in the morning, and they focus on getting filled up for the day. The daily office takes place at least twice a day. I would say at least three. He should do it three. At least three times a day. And it's not so much about turning to God to get something as it is turning to God to simply be with him. The goal of the daily office is to pay attention to God throughout the entire day in the midst of our activities. Now look, if you're a quiet time person, that's great. Some of you are great at that. You get up at 5 a.m., you beat the day, Bible, prayer, all that. Keep that up. But here's the reality. By 10 a.m., the glory of God ain't coming out of you. The caffeine's wore off. You done ran into that person at work that you don't like, all right? And so the glo- you've wasted all your glory of God, if you know what I'm saying, right? And you need to recenter yourself on God. So a great time to do that is just before lunch. Take a few minutes, recenter, and focus prayer. I also think before bed is the next best time to do it because for many of us, before bed is when the demons start just chasing. In our, like that's when the anxiety comes. That's when those fears start creeping in. Some of you have a hard time sleeping, right? Because your brain just starts racing or you're angry about this conversation that you have, or you have this regret that just keeps creeping out of your conscience. It was 15 years ago, but it keeps creeping back. One of the best ways to settle your heart and mind before bed is by giving your attention back to God. Now you think three times a day is hard, we talked about St. Benedict last week. Y'all remember the, the rule of St. Benedict? Guess how often, I can find my rule in here somewhere. There he is. Guess how often St. Benedict and his monks prayed? How many times a day? Any guesses? Not three, eight. The first one was at 3 a.m. The last one was at 7 p.m. Then they would go to bed at eight and wake up at 3 a.m. the next day and do it all over again. In their, uh, in their prayer times together, over the course of one week, they would cover all 150 psalms. But, but Tyler, I have a hard time doing a 10-minute quiet time in the morning. 150 psalms in a week! Good gracious. Now, um, chapter 43 of the Rule of Benedict is titled, uh, Tardiness at the Work of God. The Work of God. That's what Benedict and many monastics then called Prayer time, the work of God. Uh, in fact, that's where we get office from. The Latin word opus, 
Opus means work. And so we call it our daily office. They called it the work of God because they considered all of us to be workers for the Lord, servants of the Lord. And what's our number one responsibility as his servants? To pray, to pray. So they called their prayer times the work of God. This is what Benedict writes. He says, on hearing the signal for an hour of the divine office, the monk will immediately set aside what he has in hand and go with utmost speed. Indeed, nothing is to be preferred to the work of God. So in other words, like it doesn't matter if you're in the kitchen making lunch, writing a letter, you're out in the garden tilling away, whatever. When the prayer bells ring, you drop everything and you come. Why? Because it orders our time for us. It orders our time. Rather than allowing God's time to revolve around us, we allow our time to revolve around God. And that breaks the idolatry that so many of us have to time and to hurry over the course of a lifetime of small habits. Are you with me? Daily office, man, brush your teeth, y'all. Brush your teeth. If I could ask one thing of everyone in our church, it would be try to figure out a way to cultivate this three or more time a day prayer. Stretch the awareness of God out. Here are a few other benchmarks throughout the day that, uh, that you might find helpful. Uh, these are just ones in, in my life where we try to pray. Before I eat, it's another way to get a prayer in, you know, and spend, spend a moment with God, with your family usually. Uh, before important meetings or moments, Help settle you. I used to pray before ball games when I was in school. Um, I still to this day pray before sermons. Uh, before every sermon, I have a written prayer that I, I wrote myself and I've memorized and I just pray it. Um, commuting to and from work. Great time for prayer because finally your kids are not there. <laughs> they're, they're like none of the background noise, right? So you can pray. Um, for me, commuting to work, I actually take my son to school on my way here in the morning. So um, I pray with him. We do a two-minute devotion together where I tell them a quick Bible story and then I pray over them. How about weekly, monthly, or annual mile markers for your prayer life? Well, um, Sunday church is a good weekly mile marker. You should try coming to church every week because it's, I don't know, a time where we have to pray together. We have a prayerful mindset when we take communion, prayerful mindset when we read scriptures, a prayerful mindset when you hear the scriptures preached. God, illuminate something to me. Lead me to repentance and conviction today. Or how about when we sing? You know what our worship songs are? They're just prayers sung out loud together as a congregation, and they're important. Every Tuesday with our staff, I have on my calendar at 11 a.m. for us to pray together, and our whole staff prays together. Mutual accountability, because we do it together. Uh, Every uh, every Tuesday after my one-on-ones with my direct reports, I either pray for them in the meeting or for them after the meeting. Every month, we have about an hour in our board meetings that we set aside for devotionals and prayer. Every December, we have over an hour of prayer that our board prays over our Christmas Eve offering and the next year in our church. We do strategic prayer services and prayer weekends throughout the year. We had a Good Friday service last year. Uh, This is why the church has historically prayed through Lent and Advent, right? There's prayer focus during that season as we prepare our hearts to celebrate. Oh, This past uh, uh, New Year's, uh, we did a prayer service here in this room. You guys might not know what I'm talking about because I just kind of offhandedly announced it in one sermon and then we did a post of it uh, on social media. But from 11.20 p.m. to 12.05 a.m. in this room on New Year's Eve, we had a prayer service in here. And I didn't think anybody was coming. I thought it was gonna be me, a couple of our staff, and my wife and son. It'd be five of us and it's fine, we'll pray for our church. 201 people showed up, which just blows my mind. I made my six-year-old son come with me, um, and, uh, and afterwards he was like, Dad, that was so fun. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, we, we literally read scripture, uh, sang a hymn, and prayed. 
like five times in a row. We just did that five times in a row. Why was that, why was that fun, Palm? I think it was fun because he, we, got, we toasted at, at, uh, at midnight and drank a piece of, or ate a piece of chocolate. I think that's what he's fun. But he just enjoyed it. I don't know, you remember when you were a kid, there was something about those special services that were out of the norm where you felt like you're doing a little extra for Jesus that just stuck with you. And I hope that little things like that stick with him over time. So look, habituating that prayer practice, little habits, they go a long way. And honestly, I think that's what it means to be, a, uh, to be someone who prays without ceasing. You know that verse in the Bible, you should pray without ceasing. It's not necessarily spending 24-7 in a prayer closet and being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It's having a simultaneity about your mind. You live in two dimensions at once. You're here on earth working for the Lord, but you're also trying to stay in the presence of God throughout the day so that heaven and earth meet in your soul and in your life. Follow me? Create those small habits. Second, second, diversify your prayer methods. Habituate your prayer habits. Second, diversify your prayer methods. I've made a list of several ways you can do that. Um, there's, there's the ACTS method, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, which just means prayer petitions. Uh, there's prayer journaling, prayer books, praying scripture. Worship songs count. It's great. Listen, sing them. Uh, there's the Lectio Divina. Google it. There's silence and stillness. Uh, there's confession. God, do we need to rediscover confession today? Because in our culture, everybody's either a victim or blaming it all on someone else. Uh, there's also the examine way of praying, which I love examine. It's actually exactly how it sounds. At the end of the day, you go back and you re-examine the day that you just lived. At the end of the day, try this today. At the end of the day, get into a, a, as quiet of a space as you can. And I just want you to rewind to the beginning of your day and think through your day. Ask God to illuminate for you anything that you know, he'd, have, you'd, have, um, he'd have you see, and you know, just think through, like what were moments where I fell short of God's standards and of the way of Jesus? What were moments where I especially saw God's grace in life, and I just wanna give thanks for it? What feelings am I feeling as I think through my day? Is it anxiety, is it joy, is it you know, fear, is it pain, is it anger, whatever it is, pray out of that, pray out of that to God. And then when you get to the end of your day, pray a prayer of hope and blessing over your next day. Again, it's a great way to diversify the prayer life and keep, keep things fresh. All right, now with that being said, what's up with the box, Tyler? Well, um, the box is full of lots of practical prayer resources for you. Um, I actually just decided to do this this morning. And while I was doing it at the 9 a.m. service, I was like, this is a really bad idea. Like, this is, I feel like this is boring. But then they were like, no, you should do it for the 11 a.m. I asked them. I was like, was that bad? You guys bored? And they're like, no, do it for the 11 a.m. So blame the 9 a.m. If you, if you don't like this. But, but um, I want to show you some prayer resources that help me diversify my prayer life. I'm going to start with the, the nerdy ones first here. Okay. For those of you who want something a bit more high church or a bit more liturgical, that guides you through historic prayers and hymns and psalms and the likes. Uh, I've got a couple of prayer books here for you. Uh, this one is uh, called the Hour by Hour Prayer Handbook. It's based on the Book of Common Prayer, and it has about a three to four minute prayer service that you can pray. It's, the reason why it's called handbooks is because you can literally put it in your pocket and pull it out. And if you're like at lunch or maybe, maybe you're at lunch at school, you pull it out and do a quick read. All right? 
and allow you to connect with God. Uh, this is called uh, The Divine Hours by Phyllis Tickle. She has a volume for the fall and winter, a volume for the spring, and a volume for the summer. Amazing prayers. I've been just praying out of her winter fall volume for the past two or three months. It's just enriched my heart. And again, both of these are structured in an office, a daily office. So there's a morning, an afternoon, and an an evening prayer. For those of you who've got a bit of an activist heart, a lot of you, you here at the Love the Ville Church have that. This helps up. This is called the, the Book of Common Prayer, a Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals. Uh, Shane Claiborne and others put it together. This will help keep your heart directed towards Jesus rather than getting sort of sucked up in some of the evils of progressivism, right? Um, now, why would I want these, Tyler? Well, did anybody grow up in like a high church environment? Like Catholic, you know, Episcopalian, Anglican, whatever? This will take you back. This will take you back. Now, some of you don't want to be taken back. That's fine. Okay. Did anybody grow up in a low church environment where all the prayers you were like just shooting from the hip, you know? Abba, God, bro, Father, hey, dude. Like, was that, like, whatever, right? These will help give you a little structure and a little more formality to it. Maybe a little more reverence into the relationship. Next, let's do, um, okay, let's do, let's do scripture. Okay, if you want to pray through the scripture, I've got lots of good resources for you here. Uh, this is called a Bible. Very helpful for your prayer time. Uh, I've got a new living translation here. Um, it's, uh, it's my, the reason why it's my favorite translation is because it's living, right? More, less wooden. It's like some of you, some translations like the NASB or the KJV, you'll read and like, what are they saying? This is more living and, and written in modern English. And I like the translation committee behind this one. You need to know that the Bible was not written in English. Every Bible has a translation committee of scholars underneath it that interpreted it into English for you. So it's representing somebody else's interpretations, all right? So in my humble opinion, doing a little bit of homework on the, you know, uh, interpretation committees, I think the NLT is pretty good. Uh, this is another Bible. This is one that I used in college. It's called the Max Lucado Devotional Bible. Uh, I remember my mom bought it for me. She reminded me of it after the 9 a.m. service. She's like, I bought that for you uh, my freshman year. And uh, she's watched, she was watching online. She texted me immediately after the service at 9 a.m. Well, here's what I think, you know. It's usually it's positive. Thanks, Mom. But sometimes, anyway. So uh, th this, this one's great. And the reason why it was so formative for me in college is because uh, Max would, uh, he would, he would pick a scripture reading for you, and then he would give you little devos in the, in the margins. So, like, this one's on Psalm 45 to 46, and he gives a situation paragraph, observation paragraph, inspiration paragraph, application and exploration paragraph. And, you know, it took me, what, 10 minutes a day? Oh, man, during a time in my life where I was so impressionable. I thank God. Thank God for that right there. Um, this right here. Okay, did you know the Bible already has a prayer book in it? It's called the Psalms. And in the Psalms, there are 150 prayers, right? And uh, there are books that can help you pray through the Psalms. So this is called the Paraclete Psalter. If you read through this, then you will get through the Psalms, all 150 in a month. Benedict did it in a week, I'm just saying. But then you get through it in a month, all right? And I kind of like this one. My father-in-law turned me on to it because the leather feels good and it looks official. Look at my prayer, you know? Um, this is a harmony of the Gospels. Have you ever heard of a harmony of the Gospels? You ever heard of them? Okay, so what, basically what a harmony does is it takes uh, the Bible, or the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it puts them... Uh, together in kind of like a chronological gospel stew. So right here, um, I'm camera people, you're working extra hard this morning. Good job. Uh, this is this is the uh, the three different passages where 
Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. You can see it here. And so there's Matthew's version of it, there's Mark's version, and there's Luke's version of it. And it puts them next to each other so you can just kind of read it all together, right? Very, very helpful resource if you're praying through the text. And then here's just a couple of commentaries. Like, I mean, you get, get whatever comments. I, I like, this is, uh, I pulled Tremper Longman's Psalms commentary out. I like Tremper. He's a good Old Testament scholar. John Walton's Job commentary. I love John Walton's stuff. Um, the NIV application commentary series is actually a really solid one as well if you ever want to buy some of those. But pray through the scripture. Okay. Still moving here. Um, <clears throat> is this at all worth your time? Okay. So uh, th- here's some devotions. Let's talk about devotionals. Um, I'll do this one first. This is the devotional I'm currently using right now. It's called Faith and History, a devotional. It's written by literally Christian historians. So if you like history, you'll like this one. If you don't like history, do not buy this one. Um, this one right here is called What If Jesus Was Serious? Great little devotional I would rec- recommend to everybody by Sky Jathani. Uh, it walks you through the Sermon on the Mount. Two minutes. Takes you, and he does a little sketch. And each one of them, for people who like sketches, he does a sketch. He actually just released one called What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? And it's a whole book with two to three minute devotions about prayer. Get that one. I I just finished it. It was good. Um, This is called Intentional Father. Maybe my devotion of the year, the Tyler pick for 2021. Um, In this book, John Tyson walks young fathers through how to be an intentional father discipling your kids. Young fathers, I'll buy it for you if you can't afford it. Reach out to me. I'm serious. It's that important. I'll forever be grateful for John Tyson and the Holy Spirit for what he did in my heart in that one. This is uh, Mark Moore's. You guys remember Mark Moore? He preached here every once in a while. Um, Bring him out from Phoenix. This is Mark Moore's Quest 52. It's the student edition, but he also has an adult edition. So students, there you go. It's a student edition. Basically, Mark said, if I could pick out 52 most important scriptures in the Bible to press the story of the Bible into your heart, these are the 52 I would pick out, and we're going to study one of them each week. This is what he does. Okay, this is great. Students. How many of y'all want this? Come on, Caleb. Yeah, it's yours, man. Um, and then this, uh, this last one right here. Seriously, man, take it, dude. Just make sure you read it. Um, okay. And this last one right here is the staff choice. I'm going to call it the staff choice because uh, last, last year we all went through the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality material. This is a day-by-day office that uh, walk you through. I think everybody should buy this one if you're trying to brush your teeth, okay? Still going. Uh, all right, last here. Uh, read dead people. It's my advice for you. Read dead people during your prayer time. Uh, this right here is a little book by Dave and Netta Jackson where in little two-minute devotions, they talk about courageous uh, people, who, uh, Christians who come before us who suffered for their faith. Do, do stories inspire you of Christians who've come before you? This will inspire your prayer time. This is a kid's version of it. David Netta Jackson. Um, oh, and these, these kind of sit on my desk all the time. This is a copy of Bonhoeffer's Life Together. I always have a copy of something Bonhoeffer on my desk. And this is a sermons and speeches book of MLK. I'll open up and read one of his sermons every once in a while, as you'll see here in just a second, because they help inspire my thinking. Last but certainly not least, these are my prayer journals. This is my Love the Ville playbook. At least monthly, I ask myself, how am I unleashing Jesus' love in the home, workplace, city, and church? And I write about it. And uh, this is my uh, uh, prayer journal for my son, Palmer. When each of my kids start kindergarten, I'm going to start a prayer journal for him. I write down in that journal everything we talk through. Like every morning that I do a devotion with Palmer, I write down the content in the prayer book. I write down what we pray about. Every time we have a memory, we have a formative life moment, we take a trip, we make a connection about Jesus, I write it down in the prayer book. 
All right? And then someday when he's 18, he's going to get it. And so is Larkin. She's going to get hers. And so is Olson. He's going to get his. Uh, and the reason why is I want them to know that their dad tried to be an intentional father in their life. All right. Why well, show you all that stuff right there? Why? Uh, well, one, I want to give you some resource ideas. But two, diversify your prayer life. I've been reading some of those books for three or four years. You just kind of work your way through it. When the prayer life starts to get stale on one thing and you need to switch the category over, switch the category over. And, and, and instead of praying through Scripture, get you a devotional. Instead of getting you a devotional, you know, find a commentary. Get a journal. But just, just keep it fresh. I'm telling you. It'll help keep those habitual prayer times more meaningful and fruitful. All right, I want to end with a modern prayer story uh, as we transition to communion. Thanks for bearing with me at that. I, I really do hope that's helpful for some of you. As we sit a, a week away from the national holiday in which we celebrate MLK's impact on our nation, I want to read to you from one of his sermons, 1967. 1967. Now, the reason why I want to read you this sermon is because he tells a story from 1956 in his life. In 1956, MLK uh, had just moved to Montgomery, Alabama, just become the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Rosa Parks had just decided not to get up on the bus. She just got arrested. And about 50,000 black, uh, black, uh, black men and women had just decided that they were going to boycott the bus system there. In order to support the boycott, they developed in Montgomery the MIA, the Montgomery Improvement Association, and they voted this 26-year-old pastor, Martin Luther King, as the president and spokesman of it. MLK said it was exhilarating at first. National news, 50,000 people supporting him. It was amazing. But within a month, he wanted to quit. And the reason why was because the persecution came. He started getting death threats. About a month later, after the MIA was formed, uh, he got on January 26th, he got arrested for driving 30 miles per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone and then put in prison that night for it. Now the next night when he got home, he shares that uh, he went into his house and he got a phone call about midnight from another hater, another racist, threatening his life, threatening to blow his house up and to kill him and his family. And for some reason that night it hit him in the wrong way. He could handle it. He had heard threats like this before, but for some reason at night it just hit him the wrong way. So he recounts the story in his sermon. He says, I got up and went back to the kitchen and I started warming some coffee. And I started thinking about many things. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born about a month earlier. She was the darling of my life. And I sat at the table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And then I started to think about my loyal wife who was over there asleep. She could be taken from me any minute or I could be taken from her. And I got to a point that night that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 170 miles away. You can't even call on mama now. You've got to call on that something and that person that your daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of no way. And I discovered then, King says, that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. And so I bowed down over that cup of coffee and I will never forget it. And oh yes, I prayed a prayer and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And I can't let this, uh, the people see me like this because they'll become weak too. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, 
stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And I'll tell you, King said, I've seen the lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And I'm going on in believing in him. You'd better know him and know his name and know how to call his name. Don't be a fool, he said. Recognize your dependence on God. Love that story. I love it because it was out of prayer, resting and wrestling in God, that King's soul was renewed that night. He was given an eternal perspective and internal fortitude. But I heard a pastor ask this recently. He said, I wonder what would have happened to Dr. King if he'd had a smartphone. Think about it. What if King was too distracted to go rest in God in the silence? What if continual partial attention was his default? What if rather than sitting over that cup of coffee and praying, he turned on Netflix or he just unconsciously opened his phone and started scrolling through all the death threats in his inbox or went on Twitter and saw another link that was defaming him in unfair ways and then he read the comment section underneath it. Ooh, what if? I wonder if he would have tapped out. I wonder if the civil rights movement would be as we know it today. And that said about him, I wondered the same about you. What breakthroughs are you missing? I'll leave you with this, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. And we'll take communion. The Apostle Paul writes, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live. Christ Jesus.